This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Micah Utrecht, Associate Editor at Jacobin. For the last century or so, El Salvador has been a brutally unequal society. It's long been a place defined by U.S. imperialism, resource extraction, and disregard for democracy and for human rights. The U.S. has propped up brutal regimes in El Salvador and throughout Latin America, and looked the other way as those regimes crushed any dissent for a long time. But in the late 1970s and 1980s, Salvadorans organized resistance on a massive scale, both through the Farabundo Martí National Liberation Front, an umbrella group of Marxist guerrillas, and through civil society resistance, especially in the Catholic Church. This included El Salvador's Archbishop, Oscar Romero. Romero was assassinated in 1980, almost certainly by the far-right fascist forces that ran the country. No one was ever brought to justice for his assassination, until a trial began in the United States in 2003. Matt Eisenbrandt was an attorney on that case. He's also the author of a new book, Assassination of a Saint, The Plot to Murder Oscar Romero and the Quest to Bring His Killers to Justice. In a recent conversation, Matt walks through a broad swath of Salvadoran history, the radicalization of the Catholic Church there, Romero's political transformation and subsequent assassination, and the trial that attempted to track down his assassins more than 20 years later. I started working at the Center for Justice and Accountability uh, in 2002, and at that time, CJ was was actually already working on um, at least one really important El Salvador case uh, that that went to trial right around the time that I, I started there against uh, two former ministers of defense. Um, and so, uh, you know, CJ already had a bit of a focus on El Salvador. Um, and CJ is the Center for Justice for, and Accountability. Exactly. In the and, Bay Area. Uh, yeah, in San, headquartered in San Francisco. And, um, and they, uh, you know, so they were already working on uh, El Salvador issues um, quite a bit while, when I got there. And, and they had already uh, sort of opened a file on the Romero case, um, you know, because of uh, finding someone involved in Romero's assassination that I'm sure we can, can talk about. Um, and it was it was kind of in the subsequent year that that investigation really really got going, and um, you know I eventually got involved in part because I, I spoke Spanish and and um, had some background on Latin American issues. And the CJA's mandate uh, or your focus, uh, the organization's focus is mostly going after people who are, have committed things like war crimes who are living in the United States, right? Exactly. Most of the cases uh, at that time were of, of people who had committed uh, human rights abuses abroad, you know, war crimes and torture, um, most notably, and then, and then right, le- relocated to the United States. Um, and, and in addition to that, um, you know, CJ worked directly with survivors of those abuses, um, you know, who were actually the, the plaintiffs in, in cases that were brought. Um, and so they had that kind of dual focus on supporting survivors and helping them get justice and then hold accountable the people responsible who happen to be in the United States. And that might sound like sort of a niche market for you all to be involved in, in the pursuit of people who uh, committed war crimes abroad who are now living here. But there are actually a large number of people who fit that description, right? Specifically throughout Latin America, and then also specifically uh, El Salvador, there, there are large numbers of, of those people who are living here now. 
Yeah, there, there, you know, many of CJ's cases, particularly at that time, involved, uh, you know, military commanders from Latin America. Uh, we had cases involving Haiti, um, but El Salvador in particular. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the unique qualities uh, was that because the U.S. government had so much involvement in El Salvador in supporting the military during their, their civil war in the eighties. There were hundreds of thousands of refugees who fled to the United States, while at the same time, a number of military figures who were able to come to the country, either just able to get in or actually came, you know, with the help of the U.S. government. So you had this this phenomenon, and this was actually something that CJA um, was focused on. And one of the reasons uh, that the organization really wanted to um, work on El Salvador issues was specifically because uh, of that close connection uh, of the U.S. government, both you know helping to create a situation where refugees had to flee, and then also creating a situation where uh, you know military commanders uh, could come and live in the United States. Yes, all of which uh, we'll we'll get into here. So to fully understand the death of Oscar Romero, of course, you have to understand the Salvadoran civil war, the lead up to it, what produced it. Um, as well as the U.S. role in it. So can you walk us through some of those basic details? What was the political and economic situation in El Salvador at the time, let's say, uh, slightly before uh, the years leading up to Romero's assassination, before the country uh, descended into an actual civil war? Why did it turn into a civil war? And then what was the U.S. involvement? Uh, In 1977 uh, is when Archbishop Romero... Uh, became Archbishop of, of San Salvador, the, the country's capital and largest city, and, and therefore the, the most prominent uh, role in, in the Catholic Church in El Salvador. Um, so in 1977, El Salvador was basically in a situation where there had been military governments for uh, decades, almost 50 years at that point. And it was a country that was, was run by the military um, but in a sort of uh, arrangement with the wealthiest figures in the country who were actually known as the oligarchs. That was the, the label that was applied to them in El Salvador. Um, and the, the oligarchs were a, a fairly small number of families who dominated the economy. Um, and you know, while the vast majority of Salvadorans were, were extremely poor, um, and so you had massive inequality in El Salvador. You also had, um, after decades of essentially military repression that that limited, um, you know, public calls for for reforms. Um, by the 1970s, there were in fact massive uh, demonstrations, popular organizations in the streets demanding changes, you know, across the board in Salvadoran society. So you had. Um, you know, all of these calls for change, most of them nonviolent, um, coupled with uh, military repression, um, you know, protesters being killed in the streets. And that was the situation in 1977 when, when Romero became uh, archbishop. And from that point forward until 1980, um, you had just continued uh, in sort of ramping up of military repression um, that eventually when uh, key figures like Romero and others 
who could help kind of hold the country together a little bit um, when people like that were then killed, uh, you know, through 1980, it eventually helped to destroy what you might call the center. Um, and, and more and more people, you know, fled to, to the extremes and particularly to the, uh, to the armed left, which became the guerrilla army that, that then, you know, uh, by early 1981 had launched an offensive and the country was in a full out civil war. What I always find just mind-boggling when I read about El Salvador is the strain of incredibly vicious anti-communism that existed there that you trace back to 1932, uh, right? The La Matanza, the massacre that killed tens of thousands of of people in El Salvador, basically wiped out the country's indigenous population uh, that uh, was the result uh, or that was uh, was in response to uh, Communist Party organizing in El Salvador. And it was just sort of a total wiping out of, uh, of resistance at the time. That's right. And the, the history, uh, you know, of 1980 and what happened that year, you know, I think actually goes back to the 1880s and the development of coffee as a, a really critical and dominant crop that, that essentially concentrated uh, land in El Salvador in the hands of, of a very small number of people, uh, dispossess uh, indigenous people from their lands, um, leading up then over the next 50 years to um, a situation where when the Depression came, um, this was coupled with you know the already existing massive inequality in El Salvador. There was an uprising that was linked to the, to the Communist Party of El Salvador, um, sort of in combination with uh, indigenous uh, and, and uh, campesino, what you you know, what in English we would sort of say peasants, but um, campesino groups, and the uprising, you know, was uh, fairly uh, <laughs> uh, minimal in terms of its impact. Uh, but then the military used that as a justification to uh, just massacre the you know tens of thousands of people, and so it was really that combination of. Um, you know, Communist Party involvement, um, and then the military reaction to it that really, you know, had anti-communism at the core of uh, Salvadoran society and government policy from from there on forward. And of course, the Salvadoran government for the last century or so has been backed by the United States, or at least we should say the South, the government up until relatively recently. Uh, that that uh, it, the U.S. was giving amounts of money in the 80s. It was up to the tune of a million dollars a day. But uh, those regimes, even before that, were always backed by the United States, which didn't seem to have much of a problem with the virulent strain of anti-communism that, that its uh, military leaders were pushing on the country. Right. And and I think that is, you know, a general matter when you look at it, starting with, you know, the Kennedy administration, uh, Lyndon Johnson's administration, um, they were, their foreign policy was very focused on making sure that there were no more Castro style revolutions uh, like happened in, in, in Cuba. And uh, so in the 1960s, for example, there was, um, you know, U.S. military training of armed forces throughout Latin America and, and in El Salvador, um, creating essentially, uh, you know, sort of shadow structures within the militaries um, that, that, you know, gave rise to death squads, basically, 
um, you know, uh, plain clothes operations ha uh, happening outside the normal military chain, um, you know, where uh, so-called communists were being targeted. And, and that even started at a time when there was no uh, communist insurgency at all in El Salvador. And so, you know, and basically it, it evolved over time to where anybody who was calling for change or reform uh, could be labeled a communist and therefore, uh, you know, a target for, for repression. Right. And so, as you mentioned earlier, there, there was no center, essentially, that uh, the, the, the country was being led by essentially a quasi-fascist group of, uh, of mostly military leaders who had no tolerance for dissent in any kind of way that would not only want to snuff out people who are actually communists, but people who are Christian Democrats, people who were fairly centrist, but but disagreed with the hard right uh, ideology of the ruling class. They were all to be snuffed out. That's right. I mean, there there was very little distinction ever made in terms of you know understanding the vast complexity of uh, you know social movements and things like that in El Salvador. They were basically all labeled with uh, this you know tag of being communist and and therefore the enemy. Which is what produced the guerrilla war eventually, right? That uh, it's not like folks started off out in the mountains learning how to shoot at AK-47. The, the, these were people, the people who ended up becoming guerrillas had probably uh, a long history of trying to push for nonviolent social change and were only to be, not only to be shut down, but often you know, massacred to, to be killed, to be tortured, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very, very complex picture um, that, you know, we, we don't have time to, to go into all the details. But, you know, you had, um, I mean, you did have an existing communist party in El Salvador that was that was sort of, you know, underground for a long time and started to reemerge. But the fact is the communist party at that time in the, in the 60s and in the 70s was, um, from a leftist point of view, fairly conservative. It followed the, the Soviet Union's line, which was actually advocating for participation in elections and things like that. And it was only um, in the beginning of the 1970s that you had a few groups branch off and say, look, the military repression is so it's such a level and there has been electoral fraud on such a scale that there's no reason to continue, you know, advocating for elections, and in fact, we need armed resistance, and so that was the beginning of it. But in the 1970s, those were those were very small groups. Now they were carrying out kidnappings and sometimes murders of 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 oligarchs that you know terrified some of the wealthy families. Um, but the fact is uh, that the majority of the country at that time, you know, was not uh, you know was not communist no first of all being communist is obviously not justification for being murdered in the streets but um but regardless it, you know the the government and those who were opposed to, to social change would use that as a as a blanket label and certainly with no distinctions and in terms of what eventually happened in the civil war um yeah you had you had campesinos who would make up um you know large segments of um, of the the rebel army, essentially, but, um, you know, who did not, certainly didn't start out with any sort of uh, schooling in, 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 you know, Marxism or anything like that. So it's, uh, you know, the, it, it was this amazingly complex social situation in El Salvador that got, you know, just basically blanketed with the idea of communism and therefore terrorism, therefore, um, 
you know, being a traitor. <laughs> right, which served as justification for anything you wanted to do to anyone who, if, if they're a communist, then by any means necessary, exactly, you can, you can snuff them out. Exactly. Um, which, of course, leads to increasing radicalization in El Salvador, leads to people joining, uh, being frustrated at their at other attempts to affect social change and the guerrilla is the only option. And th that's sort of reflected one in, in uh, the history of the Catholic Church in El Salvador, which is uh, sort of incredible in the role that they played and in, in the way that uh, figures like Romero and other Catholic priests and, the, and, uh, and other Catholics were uh, radicalized in the country, right? Yeah, so these these things all moved in in tandem and moved at the same time. Essentially, the the Catholic Church in the in the nineteen sixties, going into the nineteen sixties, was considered a very conservative force um, in in society and and in the world. And it was in the sixties that the that the Vatican basically uh, engaged in an entire overhaul in the way that that the Catholic Church operated and how it interacted with the people. Um, and and it put the focus much more on on the people and not on the sort of you know the clergy and the bishops as as these untouchable figures. And in El Salvador and, and throughout Latin America, what this evolved into was um, a significant shift to looking at the poor and and not saying that the church is supposed to be aligned with the with governmental institutions and everything but in fact it's supposed to have a what was called a preferential option for the poor so many priests uh in the late 60s and into the 70s saw this as a call a, a religious call um a theological call to not just say provide charity and you know provide food or whatever to to the poor, but in fact to examine through a religious lens the situation in society that was creating massive poverty and looking at the issues of inequality and and basically empowering um, campesinos and others to um, to try and seek change to their uh, to their situation and this then brought those priests in particularly um, in conflict with the military, uh, you know, with wealthy landowners, and therefore um, that label of communism then got applied to priests who, um, I mean, certainly some did eventually actually even join armed guerrillas and things like that, but for the most part, um, those priests were um, simply carrying out the tenets of their religion, um, but they were also thrown into this, um, you know, under this label of communism. Right, there's wild stuff that you include in the book that uh, you would you would assume, or I would assume anyway, that priests would be sort of off limits in terms of you know, this literally sacred group of people who you can you can kill the trade unionists or whatever. You would at least have some respect for the priests. But the rhetoric around priests in El Salvador reaches near genocidal levels in some cases. I mean, you talk about. These flyers being circulated by death, quad, death squads that read, Be a Patriot, Kill a Priest. Uh, these edicts from one uh, death squad called the White Warriors Union, who said that all Jesuits, without exception, must leave the country forever within 30 days of this date. The immediate and systematic execution of all Jesuits who remain in the country will proceed until we have finished with all of them. And this is mind-boggling stuff. 
Yeah, it's it's sort of hard to to understand um, if you didn't live, you know, there at that time. It, it what it really is is it is seeing the church as um, and particularly these priests uh, on the ground in communities as another um, area of social reform that's being demanded and so which is true i mean they were and it absolutely was true and so when you know when you say you know we're used to trade unions being killed and whatever well those who were opposed to change in el salvador simply saw the church and these priests as um as as the same as the trade unionists right and in fact they saw it as as an an enormous threat because uh, el salvador uh was such a predominantly catholic country the church was traditionally aligned with the government. And so now all of a sudden you see the church going in the opposite direction. Um, and rather than being in, in, in cahoots with the government, in fact, was challenging it uh, on the local level and eventually through Romero at the, at the national level. Um, and, and with Romero himself, as he become, became more outspoken, um, they saw it as a tremendous betrayal, um, not just, okay, well, we're enduring some criticism, but in fact, um, you know, this archbishop who is supposed to be with us is actually betraying us. And so it's, it's, it's the element of the church calling for social change, but also this element of betrayal that I think is really critical in, in understanding the vitriol that was, um, uh, you know, that was, that was spewed forth against the church. You quote from some testimony in the trial, which we're going to get into in a minute, uh, but uh, told a retelling of a story of uh, someone who took a delegation of congressmen uh, from Massachusetts to El Salvador uh, to try to understand the conflict. Uh, and they met with the president of the Salvadoran Chamber of Commerce, who the, the business oligarchs of the country were the ones who were largely funding these death squads that were carrying out these atrocities, right? And uh, you have the uh, you, inc- you include this part about the um, congressman uh, asking the head of the Salvadoran Chamber of Commerce, "Sir, is it the Cubans, the Soviets, and the Nicaraguans that are causing problems here in El Salvador?" And the landowner said, "No, it is not the Cubans, it is not the Soviets, it is not the Nicaraguans." And so a senator who was Catholic said, "So who is it who is ca- causing these problems here in El Salvador, sir?" And the landowner said, "Es la Iglesia, it's the church." And the, the person who was giving this testimony says, I actually did the translation at this moment. So when I turned to the delegation and said, it's the church, they started saying, he didn't say that. He must have misunderstood. And I said, no, he says the Catholic church is causing all the problems. And they said, no, you must have misunderstood. So we were having this conversation in English on the side, and it turned out that the landowner spoke perfect English. So he turned around and said to the senators and delegation there, he said, no, no, congressman, it's the church. It's the Catholic church. Uh, speaks to the uh, the level of uh, vitriol and, and animosity that, that the ruling elite had to, towards the Catholic Church in a way that I think is hard to wrap our minds around now, especially with those of us who uh, associate religious hierarchies with maintaining uh, uh, inequalities and, and, and maintaining the the status quo in, in societies. Uh, absolutely, and and I'll say that um, that. You know, although uh, obviously, um, you know, priests are not being killed on a massive scale in Central America these days. The fact is, many of these strains still exist in Central America. Um, There are um, 
you know, in Guatemala, I know, for example, and, and throughout Central America, there's resistance to, um, you know, mining projects and things like that. And there are many times in which the Catholic Church and, and the priests in those local communities are actually leading the, the resistance, um, you know, to some of those, those projects. And you still see, um, you know, not on the level of, of the 70s and 80s, but you still see some of those um you know comments about about the catholic church so it's it's something that is is still around so where is the us during all of this time what is the us doing as things are being ratcheted up on the ground in el salvador so it's it's very interesting and 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 complicated to look at the us role particularly when romero was archbishop because that's 1977 and 1980 and that's jimmy carter's administration and Carter's, uh, I would say the Carter's administration had a paradoxical role in El Salvador. So, so Carter uh, is known uh, because he included human rights as an as a factor in foreign policy, which you know was a fairly um, progressive idea at the time. However, um, although there was an emphasis on human rights and it did play out in certain aspects. The fact is there were also many, um, many times when human rights did not get uh, sort of top consideration in, in, in foreign dealings. And in El Salvador, that, that played out. So, um, you know, to the extent that the, um, in, in February 1980, right uh, a month before he was murdered, um, Archbishop Romero actually wrote a letter to President Carter and read it aloud at, at his homily that was, of course, broadcast all over the nation through the radio. And um, he, the letter was about proposed military aid that the U.S. was going to provide to the Salvadoran Armed Forces. And Romero's uh, criticism was that it's the Salvadoran military that's carrying out all of the human rights abuses, so why would you provide them funding? Now, it was actually, in fact, a, a fairly small amount of, of military aid, and it was for what was called nonviolent or non-lethal, uh, you know, purposes. Um, but Romero didn't believe that any aid should be going to the Salvadoran military. Um, at the same time, the U.S. ambassador to El Salvador in 1980, who was only there for for a very brief period of time before Romero was killed. Um, he went there with this mandate of trying to shore up the center. And he certainly com- com- considered Romero to be a crucial figure in trying to keep the country from heading toward a civil war. Uh, the U.S. government also supported the, the Christian Democrats who, um, you know, who, who you can say were in the center, although certainly uh, from a different point of view from, say, Romero. But the, the U.S. government was essentially trying to avoid a civil war, but also trying to avoid um, a, a, a Marxist takeover of the government. And so the U.S. would be in these contradictory positions where they were trying to support uh, the center, and tr- but the, the center was also, <laughs> the Christian Democrats were also uh, in the government with the military, and the military was the one carrying out the repression. So, um, so I think what you saw in the Carter administration was uh, was conflicting um, points of view, and and um, and as a result, I think it uh, you had these criticisms coming from people like Romero, even as the U.S. government was acknowledging that Romero was a central figure <laughs> to hold the country together. Um, 
this all changed significantly uh, in the next year when Ronald Reagan became president. And then there was a significant, as you mentioned before, a very significant increase in aid to uh, the Salvadoran military that then lasted throughout the, the Civil War and, and was you know, responsible for numerous um, civilian deaths during the, the subsequent decade. And I think it's important to note, for a long time when I would hear about the Salvadoran regime, particularly in the 80s under Reagan, you would hear that it was the U.S.-backed regime, which I always just thought meant, well, okay, they gave them some money, even maybe a lot of money for things like military aid. Uh, but in, in further reading about this period, you sort of come to realize that there there was no Salvadoran regime uh, during this time without the U.S. backing. That essentially, this these people would, it's not like there was some kind of mass popular upsurge in favor of these right-wing hardline military people who were keeping them in office. There was no democracy in the society, and uh, the only reason that they were able to stay in power was this massive support that they had from the United States. Well, once the the Civil War really started in in early 1981, the the U.S. support, and, and by that I mean money, I mean weapons, um, uh, you know, and and specific training. Um, there's no doubt that the U.S. government, um, you know, propped up the the, the military. Um, now, even during the even during the Reagan years, there was there's a lot of complexity going on there that that we you know probably don't have time to get into. Um, but there, the U.S. role there, particularly in the 1980s, um, was. Um, was fundamental, and and I think you can't you you certainly could not examine that the Civil War in El Salvador without looking at the at the U.S. role. If you read a book like Salvador by Joan Didion, she wrote about uh, El Salvador was like in the early '80s. If you read it, there's not a lot of details about the intricacies of Salvadoran history or anything, but you get the fundamental point that in this time. Death is just sort of hanging in the air in El Salvador. That bodies are being dumped on city streets or in parks on a daily basis with signs of torture. Uh, anyone who, who steps out of line uh, on anything it, it seems to end up being tortured or murdered. And that this is just the norm and, and that the, the death is really like the stuff of daily life in El Salvador at this time. That's absolutely correct. I mean, you, you did see bodies in the streets... Um, and this was not just, say, for a month. I mean, this was over a period of years. Um, there was widespread torture in Salvadoran prisons. Um, you know, I've directly represented in court, um, you know, people who were tortured in the jails of the Salvadoran security forces. Um, I've, you know, had clients whose family members were killed in front of them by uniformed military. Um, this was... There was no secret about what was going on uh, in El Salvador at that time, and the repression was on a massive scale. So let's talk now about uh, Oscar Romero. Can you walk us through his life? He was far from any kind of radical for the vast majority of his life. And in fact, he was 
sort of seen as, a, as, as you mentioned before, a sort of centrist figure who could be counted on to not support uh, the rising left in El Salvador. So, so, you know, who was he and how did he, what was his overall trajectory uh, toward to, from first becoming a priest to his assassination? Romero was, you know, seen as, as somebody who was a, a dependable uh, local priest, uh, someone who needed a lot of quiet reflection, uh, a lot of prayer, um, and, and you know, was probably a, a, a bit bookish. He was always considered a, a good speaker who was known for his homilies, um, but he was, you know, focused on many of the traditional aspects of, of the church, and, and he was actually known as a bit of a stickler for, for certain rules. Um, and so he he had that kind of reputation as as a bit of an administrator and and things like that um you know there were he did confront um human rights abuses uh in the in the parish where he was uh once he became a bishop but he tended to treat those abuses as things that should be addressed in private um with officials and and letting you know those officials then hopefully resolve the the issue and it really wasn't until he became archbishop and until um his close friend rutilio grande who was a jesuit priest was murdered that romero um really uh took it to another level and became very public uh inconsistent in his criticism of the military repression but he did when he became archbishop uh in uh, 1977, he was seen as um, as conservative. I don't necessarily mean conservative, overly conservative in political terms. Just more as a safe choice, a, 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 somebody who would not um, ruffle too many feathers. And and in fact, at that time in El Salvador, the church was so linked to the government um, and to powerful entities that when a new archbishop had to be chosen, the Vatican actually consulted with the military government and with some of the oligarchs. And they were all in favor of Romero. The priests who were uh, engaged in work uh, with campesinos on the ground in communities were opposed to Romero. They saw him as too conservative and they actually favored a different candidate uh, for Archbishop. Uh, And talk about Rutilio Grande and who he was and how he impacted Romero. Rutilio Grande was one of the leading figures of um, liberation theology, which is basically the the label that is applied to this you know revolution in the church that that we talked about, where priests were looking at um, the you know the the daily existence of most people in the countries that they were in, and looking at the massive inequality. And through a theological lens, saying um, that this is not the way that things have to be. And so uh, Rutilio Grande is just probably the best known example, but there were many, many priests in El Salvador, many of them Jesuits, but also also others, who um, were putting their theological interpretations into practice um, in, there's a phrase, in, a word in Spanish, concientización, which is basically a raising of awareness among uh, among campesinos um, about that it's not their lot in life to be poor and to go to heaven because they're poor. In fact, that they can um, 
control and and their own situations and try to force uh, societal change. And so he was, Rutilio Grande was very outspoken in advocating for the rights of campesinos, particularly in the communities that he served. And as a result of that, um, he was one of those figures that we discussed before who really became a target um, for denunciation and eventually in 1977 uh, for murder. And why did that have an impact on Romero? So Romero and and Rutilio were actually um, friends. Uh, I think at the time they had uh, a different perspective on uh, you know on how these uh, sorts of ideals should be carried out. But the fact is that they were they were good friends, and so I think I think Romero as a brand new archbishop would have been impacted no matter. Uh, who the priest was who was murdered. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but I, I, I think it had added significance for him because he was close to Rutilio Grande. And, and it was Grande's death just a few weeks after Romero became archbishop that um, you know really galvanized um, the need for Romero to become more public and to become more outspoken and to take actions that were cl- showing clear support for his priests um, and and he essentially demanded of the government a full investigation and accountability for those who had killed Rutilio Grande, and uh, and he um, said that he would not, uh, for example, be involved in government events until um, until there was accountability for Grande's murder. And the fact is, there never was. And so Romero, from that point forward, simply didn't um, participate in government events. So Grande was killed in 1977. Romero is killed in 1980. So that period of his uh, sort of semi-radicalized political action is happening in a very brief amount of time from 1977 to 1980, right? Right. In in, in El Salvador, there's, um, you know, sometimes discussion about comparing Romero to Jesus, who, you know, essentially had, had three years as an adult uh, as well. Um uh, one thing I'll say, though, is is um, I think there are a lot of people who would actually not consider Romero to be a radical. Um, and I don't think Romero would have seen himself as as one either. He saw, as did Rutilio Grande, um, he viewed his own role um, as a leader in the church. And in terms of what the theology was of the Catholic Church at the time, he simply believed that he was um, implementing that. And, um, you know, there's actually, there's a, a, a snippet in the book of one of our witnesses um, who was a Jesuit priest himself who talked about whether Romero was political. And, um, and his conclusion was that Romero was not political, that Romero was, in fact, um, following the dictates of the, of the Catholic Church. And so I, um, uh, it, it's interesting to, to look at it through that angle. Certainly, I think you can say because he was so outspoken and so critical of the military, of the oligarchs, uh, of all of those people, that Romero was was radical. But I I um, also think that there are many who would say no. In fact, he was uh, you know he was just doing his duty as a leader in the church. And so, what were some of the highlights of those years from seventy seven until eighty? So the 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 most important one was not necessarily a particular event, but the continuous denunciations that came from Romero. So every Sunday. Uh, when he said mass in his homilies, he would 
talk about the human rights abuses that were going on in the country. And his homilies would then get broadcast over the church's radio station and would go out to hundreds of thousands of people. And, and in fact, those Sunday homilies became um, times when essentially the country would come to a standstill uh, while people were, were listening. There's a story that I, uh, I, I, is, I, we heard from several different people about, um, you know, they would pass like police cars um, with their radios on and it would turn out that the police were listening to Romero as well. Um, it was um, a truly national event every single Sunday when, when Romero spoke. Um, in addition to that, obviously, there were, there were certain uh, events that were really important. You can look at both the beginning and the end. Frankly, after Rutilio Grande was murdered in, in March 1977, Romero, as one of his first actions, decided to have what was called a Misa Unica, so a, a lone single mass um, in, uh, in the capital, in San Salvador, and basically canceling all the masses around the country. Um, well, this was this certainly was deemed to be radical um, by uh, the Vatican's uh, ambassador to El Salvador and, and by others who were outraged that that, that you know uh, all of these masses would be canceled. Um, so that was you know that was seen as a, a very provocative move by Romero. Um, and fast forward all the way to the day before he died, um, his final Sunday homily, he actually called on um, the soldiers in the Salvadoran military to disobey the orders of their commanders um, who were ordering them to kill civilians. And he, in his very famous words, called on them to stop the repression. Um, and he was he was murdered the next day. So those two um, incidents, I think, are, are, you know, good bookends to understand um, why Romero was so important to the country, but also why he was perceived as such an enemy by the military, by the oligarchs, and, and by the death squads. You also mentioned at one point him leading a march in which uh, the he and the people who had joined the march actually defy soldiers, armed soldiers, who are trying to prevent them from marching down a road, and that Romero is there. Uh, he's at the back of the procession, but he's yelling "Adelante," you know, forward, and uh, you know, encouraging the people to defy the soldiers on the road. And the, the soldiers eventually move out of the way. So he's literally leading mass action that is defying uh, soldiers who are trying to block them from from marching. That's right. Romero did not simply stand behind uh, the altar and, and preach. I mean, he certainly did that, and that was critical, uh, uh, critical part of his his activity and, and of his legacy. But the fact is, he would all he would go out to communities frequently and um, and be with the people in those communities and support them. Um, he would. Um, you know, on occasions like that, he would be involved in marches um, and sometimes had direct um, interactions with the military. He was, um, on occasion, he was actually um, stopped by the police and, you know, frisked uh, outside of his car. So he was, uh, he was certainly a very important spokesperson, but he was also, um, on many occasions, a man of action. You quote his final homily that you mentioned in the book. Would you mind reading, actually, some of the uh, the lines of that final homily? 
Sure, these are Romero's words uh, in his homily on March 23, 1980. I would like to make a special appeal to the men of the army, and in particular to the troops of the National Guard, the police, the garrisons. Brothers, you are part of our very own people. You kill your own campesino brothers. In the face of an order to kill given by a man, the law of God that says thou shalt not kill must prevail. No soldier is obliged to obey an order contrary to the law of God. No one has to comply with an immoral order. It is time now that you recover your conscience and obey its dictates rather than the command of sin. The church, defender of the rights of God, of the law of God, of human dignity, of personal dignity, cannot remain silent before such an abomination. We want the government to take seriously that their reforms mean nothing if they come bathed in so much blood. In the name of God, then, and in the name of this suffering people whose cries rise to heaven more tumultuously every day, I beseech you, I beg you, I order you, in the name of God, stop the repression. And just to make clear, this is the Sunday sermon that is happening at the National Cathedral being given by the most important Catholic leader of the entire country. Right? That's right. This was um, the culmination of a homily that had gone on for about two hours. And it um, you know, was clearly his most strident homily to that point and was um, you know, calculated to um, push as far as Romero thought possible um, to um, really address um, the repression that was going on. So this is his final homily, and what happens, what's the timeline after he gives this homily to his death? Uh, one day. He was, uh, this came in the midday um, on March 23rd, 1980, and um, the mass the next day on March 24th was at 6 p.m., and, and he died uh, you know, roughly around uh, 620, 625. And he was in a small chapel that was attached to a hospital, right? That's uh, right, a hospital for cancer patients. Right. And he was get, uh, giving a, a mass or, or it was a wake for someone who had recently died. It was a, it was a one-year memorial mass for somebody who had died the year before. Ah, that's right. Exactly. And the mass was advertised in a paper, right, before it happened. Yeah, it was actually advertised in a couple of the major papers in El Salvador. And it, it was um, a, a mass for uh, the mother of a publisher of uh, an independent uh, sort of opposition newspaper, um, but who had come from uh, high society in El Salvador. And, and one of the interesting aspects of the, the advertisement is that it lists the families. Uh, who are sort of sponsoring the mass, and, and the list of families is uh, of those of the real upper crust of, of Salvadoran society. But the listing of the, the mass in the paper told the entire country basically where Romero was going to be at a certain time, and not giving the mass in front of, what, hundreds of people in the National Cathedral, but at this small chapel, and uh, that he would be uh, essentially um, fairly vulnerable there. That's right. Um, there, there have been um, people who say that that advertisement in the newspapers was um, was a signal for him to be killed. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that, but certainly its significance is that um, it did 
say exactly where Romero was going to be. It said it was going to be in this small chapel. And so it's, it was deemed by those who then went and killed him as a really good opportunity to be able to carry out the murder. And so he's carrying out this mass and what happens? Uh, basically he was coming to the end of his, his homily and he was standing behind the altar at that time, um, a red Volkswagen entered the grounds of the church, um, basically pulled a U-turn, parked in front of the church, and um, within a, a few minutes, um, one bullet was fired through the entrance of the church and um, struck Romero in the chest, and um, the a couple dozen people who were in attendance at the Mass rushed forward. There was actually a newspaper um, photographer who was there and present and started taking uh, pictures right away, um, some that became obviously very famous. Um, the Some of the congregants picked up Romero and, and rushed him outside to a truck, and they put him in the back of the truck and drove him to the hospital, but uh, he was already dead by the time he arrived. So this happens, and this is 1980, just at the larger scene, this is... Uh, the. The Civil War has not is not quite in full effect yet, right? Right. Um, and what is the effect of this assassination? What Romero's death did was removed possibly the most critical figure um, who could bridge the increasing divide in the country. Um, it's not as though Romero was killed and the next day the Civil War was in full effect. Um, there, there were still several months where a number of other important incidents played out. But in removing Romero, his murderers um, eliminated a critical figure um, who could sort of maneuver between different uh, areas of society that, that were you know, increasingly estranged from each other. And so he was um, what our expert witnesses in, the, in our case called a bridge figure. And so he was a key bridge that was then eliminated. And, you know, in the next few months, the country was torn even to greater extremes. And um, you just had fewer of those people in the middle who uh, were advocating for uh, non nonviolent solutions and for dialogue, uh, and and instead you had a country that was increasingly violent and divided into armed camps, essentially. And of course, we could say that his assassination is sort of a reflection of the total lack of any kind of willingness on the part of the death squads and on a part of the the right wing figures who ran the country to allow that middle ground to ever flourish. Right. That that this is what they had been doing uh, for several years up until this point. So it would make sense that they would want to take out that kind of bridge. That's right. Um, I, I quote one of our expert witnesses who talked about the way that the extreme right in El Salvador um, viewed people like Romero or other political centrists like Christian Democrats was that they were essentially letting the foxes into the hen house. In other words, that by having sort of reforms, uh, things that were seen as somewhat moderate solutions, um, but, but things that needed to be done in society to, to change the inequality, that in fact that those people were just clearing a path for communism to come in. 
And so uh, it was actually part of the um, ideology of the far right in El Salvador to eliminate centrists and basically to be able to provoke a direct confrontation with the armed left um, you know, because by this point, the, the nonviolent uh, left was, uh, you know, essentially killed or had fled to, to the guerrillas. And so um, the extreme right saw that as their way of sort of clearing the path to then be able to eliminate the, the communist left. So this assassination happens. And what is the government's, what does the government do to try to bring his killers to justice? Do they know who committed the crimes? Does the U.S. have any idea who committed the crimes? What was the immediate response in El Salvador? Well, the immediate response was the same day that Romero was killed. Um, an investigative judge actually went to the hospital where, where Romero's body was, and um, it was his job under the law to oversee the, the beginnings of the investigation. He oversaw the autopsy um, and then attempted to go and collect evidence. Normally, um, it was the national police that were you know, required to work with him on carrying out uh, an investigation into a murder uh, in, in a criminal case. Uh, Instead, not only did the police not cooperate with him, three days later they tried to assassinate him, and the judge had to flee the country. Um, after that time, there was very little investigation whatsoever. There were some statements taken and things like that, but nothing, nothing really uh, effective happened. Um, so n nobody was ever put on trial in El Salvador for Romero's murder. During the subsequent years, there were a few witnesses who um, talked behind the scenes. Um, for example, there was um, a, a, a security forces officer um, in the Salvadoran military who actually came and talked to uh, an official of the U.S. Embassy and told details about being at a meeting where Romero's assassination was planned. Um, the U.S. government you know, transmitted those um, statements that information to um you know to the state department in washington so it was in uh, internal uh, u.s government channels but was not made public until several years later um when the former uh, ambassador to el salvador robert white um, made them public in in congressional hearings um, there were other uh, aspects though where there very clearly should have been Justice for Romero's case. So just a few months after Romero's murder, um, there was actually a raid on um, this group of basically far-right uh, coup plotters who were actually wanting to overthrow the government in El Salvador. And, um, and significant evidence was seized there, including um, a date book um, that came to be known as the Saravia Diary um, that was basically a ledger uh, for the death squad that had carried out Romero's uh, assassination. And it had all sorts of notations about weapons and, and things like that, um, in addition to having names and phone numbers of some of the wealthiest people in El Salvador. So there were um, there was evidence uh, you know, about this death squad and its involvement in violence. And in fact, there was a, a part of the this diary that was 
um, that many people think was actually the description of, of Romero's assassination. So that evidence existed, um, but wasn't didn't become public for a few years after that. And even once it did become public, um, it, it was still many years until there was any real investigation into Romero's assassination um, that that eventually came in 1987. And so what happens in 1987? So in 87, there was a, a there had been a governmental change in El Salvador, and there it was a sort of brief opening um, to possibly look into, um, you know, who was responsible for Romero's murder. And the uh, Salvadoran government, um, with some U.S. support, actually found the uh, getaway driver from the assassination. And he secretly came to El Salvador and testified uh, about being the driver um, and driving the the shooter to the church um, where Romero was killed. And um, the getaway driver uh, essentially pointed the figure at his boss, um, a man named Alvaro Saravia, um, and then said that Saravia had basically organized the, the assassination and then um, had reported back to a, a very important figure in El Salvador named Roberto Dobison, who had basically um, run the death squad. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about who Dobison was and what his relationship specifically with the U.S. government was? Dobison is a... Is a fascinating uh, paradoxical figure in El Salvador he essentially um, rose to prominence as a military intelligence official um, in the Salvadoran military in the late 1970s and had a a particularly acute mind for um, how to uh, basically engage in uh, counter uh, insurgency in anti-communist um, activities, and he played a dual role of a, sort of a clandestine role in basically running death squad operations, um, but then also being a public face. So he would actually hold press conferences and record TV segments where he would den- denounce certain people as being communists. And then um, some of the time after these things were on TV, those people would actually be murdered. Um, so that happened to the attorney general of, of El Salvador. He actually denounced Romero as well. Um, and so Dobbison becomes this important figure who's, who's playing a couple of different roles. Um, and he eventually um, becomes a very prominent politician. He developed an entire political movement um, in conjunction with some of the wealthiest figures in El Salvador, and it became a political party that over time um, rose to great prominence and actually was in charge of the country for many, many years. So Dobbison is, um, is, a, is a central and extremely important political figure, but he was also uh, involved in Romero's assassination, um, something that, of course, he always denied, uh, but in fact, the evidence is quite strong. So what came of these first investigations into the assassination? Well, nothing. Um, in, in 1980, when I mentioned that raid that, that came up with all this evidence, in fact, uh, Dobbison was, was there, uh, Saravia was there, a number of other people were there, and they were all arrested. Um, but the uh, far right um, mobilized and, in fact, um, eventually 
Um, there were uh, maneuvers within the military such that um, the the far right um, really used it as an opportunity to uh, seize power again. And they basically um, came in and then uh, Dabi Sun and Sarabi and everybody else was, was freed from prison. So there was never a prosecution there, even though they had obtained this you know, critical evidence. Um, in 1987, after the driver's uh, testimony, at this point, Alvaro Saravia had actually come to the United States and was living in Miami. And so he actually was arrested and there were um, extradition proceedings started in a Miami court to try and have him sent back to El Salvador to stand trial. But because by this point, Roberto Davison was one of the most prominent people in all of El Salvador was a key politician um, and a darling of some on the right in the United States right that's folks right like Jesse Helms people like States. Jesse Helms and certain certain uh, conservative Republicans in the United States he had become uh, he was seen as an anti-communist crusader and therefore um, somebody who should be supported in spite of uh, all of the allegations about his involvement in, in death squad activities so um, the 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 far right and Dobbison in particular um, went to great lengths to undermine this potential prosecution of of Alvaro Saravia and eventually got the Salvadoran Supreme Court to invalidate um, the arrest warrant that had been issued and the extradition uh, request that had been made from El Salvador to the United States and. With none of those things uh, in play anymore, the Miami court had no choice but to release Alvaro Saravia from, from custody. So he was never sent back to El Salvador. He was never put on trial. And none of his information about Dabison and the people who supported Dabison ever uh, came out at that time. So then what is the, what, what happened throughout the 90s then in terms of this effort to bring the killers to, uh, to some level of justice? Right. So after after this incident, uh, essentially nothing happens for a few years. Eventually, 1992, uh, Dobbison died of cancer, uh, and the Civil War actually came to an end uh, in 1992 as well. Part of the peace accords called for a truth commission, and the, so there was a, U, a United Nations sponsored truth commission uh, in 1993. Put out a report that was very very detailed. Um, in investigated a number of the key um, incidents and atrocities that were carried out during the Civil War, including Romero's assassination. And the Truth Commission um, concluded that Roberto Dabison had ordered the assassination, that Alvaro Sarafi was involved and some other people were involved. And um, five days after the Truth Commission's report came out, the Salvadoran Legislative Assembly, which was dominated now by Roberto Dabison's political party, passed a sweeping amnesty law that basically prevented any possibility of prosecutions, not only for Romero's murder, uh, but also for all of the abuses that occurred during the Civil War. And, and from that time forward until 2016, um, that amnesty law has, has, was in place, and so there, there were no prosecutions. So there's no prosecutions, but we have a fairly large amount of collected evidence about who it was that had carried this out. Um, how is it that the Center for Justice and Accountability enters the picture? We came into the picture essentially in 2001. Um, as I mentioned, CJA had been 
working on another case against two uh, former ministers of defense from El Salvador, which was an important uh, legal case because they had they had come to retire in the United States, basically. So that was an important case. And while that case was going on in 2001, there were two important uh, events. The first is that there was a Salvadoran man who was actually working with the Center for Justice and Accountability who went into a law office in San Francisco one day, and in the office, he saw Alvaro Saravia, um, the the guy who had been previously arrested in in Miami and had been named by the Truth Commission as being involved in in Romero's assassination. So that was the first uh, event that happened. Um, So a random Salvadoran man in the United States walks into a law office and he sees a war criminal from his home country. That's, That's exactly right. And, and crazy as that sounds, um, this has happened on other occasions with other uh, alleged torturers or war criminals. It's, it's certainly not common, but it is not unheard of for these sorts of sightings to, to occur. Um, and uh, and that's, one, that's one of the reasons, in fact, that, that CJ exists as, as an organization. Uh, but yeah, but quite a surprise, right, to, to see uh, Saravia sitting there in the law office. So that was the, the first thing. And the second thing was a little bit later in 2001, the Miami Herald actually ran a news article um, about torturers and war criminals uh, coming to the United States and living in the United States. And one of the people they mentioned was Alvaro Saravia. And the added detail there was that he was living in Modesto, California. So as a result of that information, um, CJA uh, launched an investigation that uh, eventually ended up resulting in the filing of the, the legal case that I discuss in the book. What, what was the hope with this case, the sort of best case scenario that would come out of it? What There were two goals, I would say, um, in bringing this case for Romero's assassination. So the first one was, obviously, Alvaro Saravia was now known to be living in the United States and and known to be involved in Romero's assassination. So there was an opportunity to hold him accountable and to finally, um, hopefully, take a case to trial um, for Romero's assassination because this had never happened in El Salvador or anywhere else in the world. The second part was that because of all these connections between El Salvador and the United States, um, there was hope that we might be able to, in fact, go beyond Sarabia um, and, and, in fact, bring in other people uh, who were also involved in Romero's assassination uh, and, and include them in the case as well because... Many of the um, supporters of Roberto Davison, some of the wealthy people in El Salvador, had um, had condominiums or homes or businesses in the United States, particularly in Miami. And some of them had actually fled El Salvador during the war um, and were living in the United States. And so we saw it as an opportunity to potentially bring um, them into the case as well. And, and really not focus as much on, um, on the lower level, you know, for example, the person who actually shot Romero, but instead looking at the people above them who may have, in fact, ordered it or at least supported 
Dobbyson's death squad in a way that they might be legally responsible as well. So we saw those as important objectives with the case. And when, it, when we filed the case, we filed it against Saravia himself and then um, what were called Doe's 1 through 10. So basically like John Doe 1 through John Doe 10. And those were the people higher up that we hoped to be able to get enough evidence to bring them into the case. So through the going through the motions of, of the court that you would... Uh, other in introduce, Introducing evidence about someone like Saravia, you would be able to... Uh, also get evidence about these other people right so there was already some evidence out there um about the role of um you know wealthy civilians for example supporting dobbyson's death squad so there was some evidence but we also knew that we were going to be launching a full-scale investigation and we hoped through that investigation to uncover witnesses who could actually testify on the record uh, about the role of of you know wealthy civilians um, financing uh, Dobbyson's death squad, and I'll add here too that um, one of the unique features of this case was that in fact this was not a criminal case against Ravia. Uh, it was not a criminal prosecution, as um, you know, as as uh, civilian lawyers, um, we only had. Uh, really one option, and that was to bring a civil lawsuit. So basically to sue Saravia uh, to try and establish his legal responsibility and, and basically ask for, for compensation um, for one of Romero's relatives. Um, there weren't really any laws in place at the time in the United States um, that would have allowed for Saravia to be criminally prosecuted. So this was a, a civil lawsuit, which obviously is not ideal because it doesn't result in anyone going to jail, but became important um, because um, Sarabia had actually uh, disappeared. And, and an important part of our case was trying to locate him. Um, in a criminal case, it wouldn't have been able to go forward, but because we had a civil lawsuit and we had him... Uh, with numerous connections uh, to an address in Modesto, California, we were actually able to continue with the case in spite of the fact that um, he was not physically in the courtroom. So you give a blow-by-blow account of this whole case, uh, the twists and turns, which read on something like a movie. Uh, you parked outside of houses with binoculars trying to get eyes on him and all this kind of thing. Um, but uh, the eventual result is that in, in absentia, he is found guilty, correct? Yeah, he's found... Uh, I, I steer away from the word guilty because that, that usually is the, the criminal uh, context, but he was found legally responsible and was ordered to pay uh, $10 million uh, for his involvement in Romero's assassination. And then after the trial, you eventually track him down, right? That's right. So we had spent you know, essentially a year... Um, in trying to find him. And, and I, I talk in the, the book about the various information that we uncovered on his locations and, and some of the, the, the bizarre twists and turns that, that played out there. Um, but eventually, after our case, after we got this verdict against him, uh, he actually popped up and gave an interview um, to a, a, a newspaper in uh, Miami and after that, he started popping up again from time to time. And uh, what I talk about at the, at the end of the book is that eventually he contacted us. 
and so there there were a number of um, a number of events that played out subsequent to that. Um, but Saravia showed himself to be someone who was actually willing to talk about what happened, but in ways that sometimes he was you know still holding on to the information that he thought was the most critical um, and and was trying to use that in a way that would improve his own personal situation. He's a very interesting character in the book. He's always telling you, no, you know, it wasn't so-and-so who pulled the trigger. I know who did it. And you say, oh, well, who did it? And then he's, well, I can't tell you that. And he's always threatening to write a whole tell-all book, right, about That's what right. actually happened. And seems to be trying to, he's in a rough spot financially. He's trying to get you to pay him or he, he wants a big payout for this book and uh, before he, he spills all these details. That's right. He um, he's he was a very strategic figure, and and you know sort of knew what he was doing, um, but also yeah would always threaten to reveal the most you know critical and 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 damning information uh, you know against uh, other people in El Salvador, uh, but never quite delivered on on those sorts of of promises but he he in 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 doing that and having those conversations he would still reveal though some important details and important confirmations of evidence such that um we now have a, you know a fairly complete picture of what happened at least on on the day of March 24th 1980 um and and who the people were on the ground, actually, you know, putting together the operation and, and carrying it out, and um, and you know, Sarabia's statements about that have been particularly, you know, important evidence. So you get this ruling against him. Uh, you have collected a huge amount of evidence that implicates a whole range of other people in this assassination. You are eventually able to use that in order to talk to him and get even more information out of him. How would you characterize where you're where you're left with the with the trial? What the um, what the sort of the wins and losses and, and what remains to be seen uh, of that trial are? Yeah, the trial was uh, both uh, you know a, a high point, uh, but also um, reflective of the shortcomings of the investigation. So, in the end, we were able to hold a trial against Saravia, and he was found responsible. Um, and and it, it's the only court verdict ever um, about uh, Romero's assassination. So just as a historical matter, we considered that very important. And, and certainly it was important to hold Saravia responsible, uh, even if he's not the only person, at least to, to hold him responsible um, you know, for his involvement. That being said, we never ended up filling in those does one through ten. We never ended up naming another defendant in the case. Um, and we, through our investigation, and I talk about this in the book, we did um, uncover other evidence and we did speak to some witnesses who had information against the death squad financiers. Um, but we never got to the point of feeling comfortable enough with that evidence, knowing that if we brought in one of these very wealthy uh, figures, that person would certainly defend uh, himself with you know the best lawyers there were, and um, that you know our our evidence really needed to be 
ironclad if, if we were going to add someone to, to the case. Um, and, and for those reasons and a number of other sort of logistical and timing reasons, um, we were never able to bring anyone else into the case. Um, that was, you know, one of the motivations in, in writing the book was to be able to um, put some of that evidence uh, in the public realm that, that had not uh, come to light previously. Uh, and But at the end of the day, um, through, through our investigation, through previous investigations, through some subsequent uh, fantastic reporting by journalists, um, we have, I think, a very good picture of what happened on the day of the assassination. We have a, a good picture of the people in Dobbison's uh, death squad who carried out the assassination. And we have a somewhat of a picture of some of the wealthy civilians who may have had a role in the assassination itself, and certainly some of them who supported and financed Dobbison's operations. What we're still lacking is certainty around who above Dobbison had a role in in either ordering or conceiving of the idea of killing Romero. And I think that's the piece that has not fully been filled in yet. And and, um, even after all of these years, um, we still don't have that complete picture. And my, my hope in writing the book is that Perhaps that can help to continue to spark um, other investigation into into that issue because I, I think that is of of critical importance going forward. So what we've been talking about here is the decades long struggle to get some level of accountability for one incident. Granted, it was one of the most important in the Salvadoran Civil War, but this is one incident in a civil war that lasted over a decade. Um, and one among things like the massacre at El Mosote, where there's 800 people slaughtered, Rio uh, uh, Lempool, where there's something like 200 people, maybe more, uh, killed. Um, and just, a, as we mentioned before, a, a country in which bodies were turning up on a daily basis, tortured and mutilated on the streets. Um, so, in some sense, it's a bit of a drop uh, in the bucket in terms of the overall scope of the brutality that took place in El Salvador at the time and, and, and a particular interest to the U.S. citizens, you know, of course, all of this was funded by, um, by our tax dollars. So how would you characterize, not just, you, you characterize the, the, where, where things stand with Romero's, uh, bringing Romero's killers to justice now, how would you characterize the state of the efforts to, uh, bring people to account for war crimes broadly during the Civil War. I mean, you mentioned that recently um, this blanket amnesty law was lifted. I assume that means that there are new opportunities to go after people who had carried out these kinds of crimes? Yeah, it's a very interesting development. So just a few months ago, the the highest court in El Salvador invalidated this amnesty law. Uh, Since that time, there had been a handful of cases either started or reopened, um, including one about the massacre of El Mosote. But we don't yet know where those cases are going to go. Um, part of the ones that have been reopened are going to depend on how the judges look at, at that. And, and there's certainly uh, you know, issues of um, judicial independence and other things in El Salvador 
that it's not clear, uh, you know, how the courts are going to treat these cases. But there are numerous other uh, abuses and incidents um, that, you know, there are no active cases at all going on. So those will require political will where government prosecutors and presumably people above them in the government are going to have to show an interest uh, in bringing these sorts of prosecutions. And Romero's case is, is one of them. Uh, interestingly, um, before the amnesty law was lifted and El Salvador was still in a state of complete impunity, um, there were legal actions in other countries, most prominently uh, the United States and Spain, uh, to seek justice and hold accountable some people. So we've already talked about the two ministers of defense um, who were held responsible in a Florida court uh, in, in one of CJ's cases. Um, we did another trial in Memphis, Tennessee uh, against Nicolas Carranza, who was sort of the operational commander of the Salvadoran Armed Forces in 1980, in the year that Romero was killed. Um, so you have some of those cases then you have uh, in Spain, there's uh, an active criminal case open for the murder of um, Jesuit priests in 1989. And that case uh, has been moving in, in some fits and starts, but there is actually a member of the Salvadoran military, a high-ranking member who's under arrest in the United States facing possible extradition to Spain. And if that happens, then that there will be a trial in Spain for the murder of the Jesuits in El Salvador. So you, ha you see some of these advances in other countries, and now that the amnesty law has been lifted in El Salvador, we will have to see if those have any sort of impact um, in El Salvador and, and what the political will will be. Interestingly, um, those cases you know, do have a direct impact in El Salvador. For example, the two ministers of defense who had been living in Florida um, they have since been um, deported by the U.S. government, and they are now back in El Salvador. So, um, you know, you see these direct impacts of, of, uh, of you know, legal actions in other countries um, coming home to El Salvador. And, and I think this whole mix will, uh, you know, hopefully break the ice a bit in El Salvador such that there can be some prosecutions going forward. I have... I have guarded optimism, but also, um, you know, a good bit of cynicism given the, the history in El Salvador. Um, and and I'm, I'm anxious to see where, uh, where these cases might go and whether we might eventually get accountability for some of the worst abuses during the war. Well, Matt, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Jacobin Radio. You can subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Blueberry. We appreciate ratings and reviews, of course. And you should feel free to visit our website at jacobinmag.com. <laughs>